You join me as we pray together. Spirit, we do pray that you will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ before our eyes and magnify him this morning. That he might truly be our passion, our aim, our vision, and our anthem, and our song. Jesus, you alone. Uh, receive the glory this morning as you have in our um, in the worship that we have sung, in the dedication of our children, in our times of silent praying. And now as we pay attention to your word, Lord, because your words carry weight. It's more important for us to hear what you have to say and understand that than any other single thing in our lives. And so may we continue to worship you by careful attention and by a submissive spirit this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. A book that I was reading recently, a pastor in the United States shared a letter that he had received from one of his parishioners not too long ago. That's what it said. In the last week, I've not wanted to turn on the television news or read every article in the paper as I usually do. The world is too ugly and disturbing. Humiliation over the prisoner abuse in Iraq. Fear of the future as we deal with terrorists openly beheading Westerners for broadcast viewing. Solicitations for pornography constantly in our inboxes. And then I look in my own heart and see the materialism and criticism and lust. All of this to say, I can't imagine I'm the only one who's particularly struck by the darkness and the depravity of our world. We can easily feel so hopeless about the world we live in and the future we face. I think most of us could have written a letter like that. All of us need encouragement to be able to endure with hope in the face of visible realities that are so stark and ugly and discouraging. That's not new. Everybody can understand that. But here's my question. When you look at the sources of encouragement and hope for living in the face of these realities, how many of you would have put at the top or near the top studying the Old Testament? Not too many, I suspect. And yet, according to the New Testament, that's exactly where hope comes from. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 15, verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So Paul says what was written, and he's referring to the Old Testament. It was written, first of all, for the kind of instruction that will encourage and give us endurance with hope. That is why in this pulpit you regularly hear preaching from the Old Testament. That's why we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah. Not just through favorite chapters here and there, but all of it. Because all of it was written in order to give us encouragement and endurance. And today as we come to chapter 60, we've come to the first of three chapters, 60, 61 and 62, that taken together do exactly this function by painting a glorious future for, this, for Jerusalem. Uh, and for, also referred to as Mount Zion where the temple is. And God's glory will rise, as we just sang that song from Isaiah 60, God's glory will so light up Jerusalem and Zion, that transformed by that glory, she will attract the nations to herself. All of this will be made possible, according to Isaiah, because of this conquering arm of the Lord, the anointed servant who will be coming. We know him to be Jesus. It is this glorious future, which if it grips our hearts, will give us the encouragement and the endurance to keep living faithfully in the present realities. The 60th chapter of Isaiah gives you six 
themes or declarations. And they're all found in the first nine verses. Although there are 22 verses in the chapter. Let me just walk you through each one of them. And that will build the bridge to where we are today. The first thing it says is that the peoples of the world are in darkness. Verse 2 says this. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. Now, peoples is not a word that we use often in the English language because we know the word people is a collective noun already. So you don't need an S at the end of it to make it peoples. Yet we have it in our mission statement, making disciples of many people. We didn't get that wrong. Because the word peoples in the scriptures translates both in the Old Testament and New Testament an idea of not just nations, but rather of small, much smaller units of people that are so bound together by culture and linguistic characteristics that sets them apart and makes them distinct from any others. This, chap, this passage will use words like nations and islands and coastlands, but the foundational term is peoples. And it says that these peoples, these uniquely identifiable subgroups of people that the world is made up of, are all in darkness, are in thick darkness. Which is a metaphor for their spiritual losses. They are cut off from the living God, from Yahweh, this great I am that we've been singing about. This is the natural condition of all peoples. The second assertion follows upon this. The glory of Yahweh has shined selectively upon one particular people, Judah. 60 verses 1 and 2, and notice the selectivity. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness and shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. If you want to get the thrust of what he's saying as an image, imagine this church, not seated the way you people are seated right now, but all the Sri Lankans in one place, the Indians and the Chinese over here, the Europeans here, and the Dutch people here, and whatever, and every single group of people. And we're all in darkness, complete darkness, and all of a sudden a brilliant light shines, and it shines a spotlight on just one group of people. Now you get some idea of what he's saying. That's the picture. All the peoples of the world are in darkness, but God in his sovereignty has chosen to shine and illuminate one particular group of people, Judah. And the third thing he says in this text is that as a result of this shining, Judah herself is transformed. Verses 3 and 9 in this chapter says this, And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising, because he has made you beautiful. This luminosity that is the glory of God shining upon this particular subgroup of people actually transforms them so that the light is internalized and they shine with an intrinsic light. And as a result of that, it says the fourth assertion, the peoples flock to the radiance of transformed Judah. There are at least eight different synonyms that are used in this text for the coming, the gathering, the coming of the nation. They come by land, they come by sea, they came by camels and they come by ships. And they're all coming. They're coming from north, south, east and west. Eight nations are named and they picture the whole globe. And this vision of a Judah that has been transformed into a glorious entity that attracts the nations from all over the world, has been sustaining Isaiah from the very beginning. It's probably what unleashes literary genius. Way back in chapter 2, which seems like an eternity before I know, we read these words. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Isaiah has been writing all the while with chapter 60 in mind and 61 and 62. So there are four things we've learned so far. 
The peoples are in darkness. God shines selectively in his glory upon one people. He transforms them. And with the radiance becoming internalized, the nations are drawn to that transformed people. Now the fifth thing that he says in this section is that while they are drawn and attracted by this transformed community, it is not ultimately to worship the people, but to worship their God that they come. And so that's the fifth assertion. Verse 9 says, For the coastland shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel. God's purpose in illuminating one particular people's group with his glory and transforming them is not to make them great, but so that they will worship that nation's God, who is the original glory, the the, the glory that did not come from anywhere else. He underlines that in verse 7, when he says, all the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Neboiah shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar and I will beautify my beautiful home. In other words, these people coming in will be their worship. What they bring will be acceptable as worship sacrifices to Israel's God. And then notice this word, he says, I will beautify my beautiful home. In other words, these cultures, these these uniquely different people groups, though they were in darkness and cut off from the knowledge of God, when they come and become part of that worshipping community, they will enrich the people of God. These cultures, while in darkness, have unique characteristics, unique strength, unique abilities. So every single culture that, will, that is added together, he says to my people, I will make my whole house beautiful as a result of that. And so that's the fifth assertion. Yahweh accepts the worship of the people who then add to the beauty of Judah. And then as for Judah herself, she will know great joy. It says Judah's heart will overflow with joy. As she watches all this happen. Verse 5. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult. Because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. And the wealth of the nations shall come to you. So as she sees herself illuminated by the glory of God. Transformed by that glory. Attracting the nations to her God. Enriching her in the same process. Her whole heart will be filled with great, great joy. And she will also know this to be the doing or the work of the Lord. That is all ultimately God's work. For verse 16 and 21 near the end say this. And you shall know that I the Lord am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever, the branch of my planting, the work of my hands that I might be glorified. And so this last assertion ties together something else that you've heard me say many times. That ultimately Judah's glory, Judah's joy and her pursuit of her God's glory are one and the same thing. So those are the six basic assertions that we find in this chapter. The peoples are in darkness. God's glory rises selectively upon Judah. It is a transforming glory. It is an attracting glory. The nations are drawn to that light. They worship God. They enrich the people of God. And this fills Judah with great joy and and gladness because God is glorified in all of this. And then the very last verse says, and you can be absolutely certain, all this is going to happen. Verse 22 says, I am the Lord, in its time I will hasten it. Now this is an interesting verse because it captures two dimensions of time in the same verse. You've heard me talk about Kronos and Kairos many times here. Kronos is quantity of time, like when I say this service will last 90 minutes. That's quantity of time. Kairos, on the other hand, is quality. So when we say these are times of transition in Rextel, so it is high time we all prayed together. Those are not Kronos statements. Those are season statements. And, and in this verse 22, after describing this amazing picture, this glory of Zion in the future, and a worldwide worshipping community, he says, in its time, 
I will hasten it. Kronos time, we have no idea. In fact, it's been 2800 years since these verses were written. So Kronos time can be very long and slow. Which is why endurance and hope is needed, by the way. But Kairos time is extremely fast. So in other words, when the times and the seasons come for God to advance these purposes, they can happen that fast. But then you ask yourself the question. What is the purpose in painting such a glorious future when the Kronos time can be large, waiting for it? Well, Isaiah 60 tells us this, you know. It says this. Paul, that's what Paul said, right? These things were written for our endurance. So I've kind of summed it up this way. Isaiah 60 is written in the past about a guaranteed glorious future to stimulate present participation in God's purposes. He doesn't want us to live in the past. He doesn't want us to get all bogged down by imagining a future that hasn't here because we don't know how much longer is left for it. It's the present obedience that is the key. But the glorious future, which is eternity, is set before us. Somebody once said very beautifully that the past and the future are devil's territory. The present and eternity is ours. Isaiah 60 is written in the past about a guaranteed glorious future to stimulate present participation in God's purposes. And by the way, that's exactly how this text has functioned throughout history. Let's wind the clock up 300 years after Isaiah wrote these. Just like he said, the Babylonians have been defeated by the Persians. The Persian king left Judah, comes back from exile, they build the altar and then they start building the temple and there's opposition from the Samaritans who are, who are in, have been left there and so they give up. It gets too hard and so they give up. And God sends two prophets, a young man named Zechariah and an old prophet named Haggai and they preach to them to get them to start building the temple again. And do you know what truths they use? Exactly the truths from Isaiah 60. Listen for yourself. Said in a new way, I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. You know, all the gold and the silver coming in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And Zechariah picks up the same thing. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I come and will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. Exactly the same truths as in Isaiah 60. And what happens? They start building the temple and they complete it. Present obedience was secured by pointing to a future glory that was unimaginable. Well, another 500 years pass. And Isaiah 60 takes an unexpected leap forward, but in a way that nobody anticipated. Once again, the peoples were in darkness. Rome was sovereign ruler, militarily powerful, but a debauched people and cruel. The Greeks were the intellectuals of that day, but they served a pantheon of gods that were fighting with each other and simply looked upon men to serve them. In, in Ephesus, the cult of Diana or Artemis, the goddess of the underworld, was strong. And as for Judah herself, the two primary branches of Judah's leadership had again deteriorated into darkness. The Pharisees were the legalists who put unbearable burdens upon the people so that religion became a joyless thing. And the Sadducees, who were the priests, who were supposedly leading their people in the worship of this great I Am, were the leading anti-supernaturalists of that day. They did not believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the power of God. They didn't know the scriptures. They were in cahoots with Rome and lined their back pockets to keep peace in Jerusalem. The peoples were in darkness. And all of a sudden, the Judean countryside was lit up by the glory of God one night. And a bunch of shepherds were told to go to a manger. 
And at the same time, another star rose and people from the east started making a journey to the same place. And you know what they brought with them? Gold, frankincense and myrrh and gold and frankincense are measured, mentioned in Isaiah 60 as some of the wealth that the nations and the kings will bring to them. So God did show up. The glory of God did come to Zion. God, the glory of God rose upon them, but in a completely unexpected way, in, in a baby, in God incarnate. And just like Isaiah 60 said, the nation started streaming to him right from then. In fact, that's the first picture of worship we read in the New Testament. Gentiles opening their treasures to Jesus. And then when he grew older, it continued. People came from Galilee, from Tyre, and from Sidon. The nations were drawn to him. Much to the horror of the religious elite who never understood Isaiah 60 anyway. And then after Jesus died and rose again and the Holy Spirit came upon that upper room, God's glory filled his temple. Only this time the temple was different. It was not the physical temple. It wasn't Mount Zion physically. It was the people of God. Jews and Gentiles. Individually and together, the temple of God inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And so again, the prophecy of Isaiah 60 was coming true, but in a completely unexpected way. Now, this last point about Judah's joy and all of that, that took a while coming. <laughs> in fact, they didn't like it at first. They couldn't understand it. In fact, God had to send persecution in Jerusalem and scatter the people. So they began preaching in Judea and Samaria. And Samaritans, half-breeds, came to Christ. And then some people went as far as Antioch and began to preach the gospel to Gentiles. And they heard the word of God gladly and they started coming in. And God had to actually show Peter in a vision three times, don't call unclean what I've called clean. So it took, the, it took Judah quite a while to begin to get excited and have their hearts excited about this worldwide streaming in of the people. But they eventually got there. So as I said, 500 years later or 800 years after Isaiah's writing it, the prophecy took a whole new step forward, the vision. And it has continued to draw closer for the 2,000 years after that. From that tiny little fishing village in Palestine, that good news has gone all over the world today so that 2.1 billion people or so around the world, in some way or another, some version or another, are naming the name of Jesus. And you know, the other amazing fulfillment of the prophecy all of that, almost all of that has been financed by Gentile wealth, not by Jewish wealth. Just like Isaiah said, the treasure of the nations will come. It is the Gentiles' treasures for 2,000 years, and today too, that continues the outward thrust. And, what is more, just as he has promised, the people of God have been incredibly enriched by these cultures. What a pleasure we have in our church to have 49 different nationalities worshipping together. Just like individuals don't have it all together and need other individuals to come alongside them, so too any one particular culture doesn't have everything that is needed to make humanity flourish. We need other cultures coming in, each one bringing their strengths. Each one's weakness is compensated by the other people's strength. And that, of course, has happened. You only need to go to other parts of the world and see. And we get reports back. You know, even our Cambodian team last week gave us a report. And we saw little children worshipping in corrugated tin roof churches with Jesus as much present there may be more than here enriching us in each way so all of that has continued to happen but we've still got a long way to go 
There are still hundreds if not thousands of peoples that are still living in thick darkness who have not yet heard the gospel of Jesus. Who are cut off from every opportunity to hear and understand the gospel to various degrees. And the New Testament speaks about them in these words. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They are in darkness because it's a spiritual darkness cast upon them by the enemy of our souls. And while the worldwide church of God, inhabited by many worshipping cultures, is in fact a glorious fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 60, there's still much in the church that is still ugly that needs to be changed before she will become that fully radiant bride that will attract the nations. And the gospel is powerful for that as well. Second Corinthians chapter 3, 18 says, And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Every time we gather together to worship, every time we get alone with God to gaze upon His face, a transforming work of grace is happening in our lives. God is in the business of making it. His glory still rises upon us to keep on purifying us, to keep on making us attractive. This is a necessary precursor for the outward work to, to be accomplished. Now a question that comes to our mind is, what does a shining church look like? What today, where we are at, as the prophecy continues to unfold and move towards this amazing future, as God's glory continues to make the church more and more beautiful, what will that beauty consist of? Well, in, in some extent, it is Christ-likeness. Uh, our own personal holiness, our own piety, uh, our life that is distinguished from the life of people around us. That's true, but in the context of Isaiah 56 to 59, I think it says even more. It, it talks about our transformation to become a just and righteous people. It is as the church is marked by a passion for justice and righteousness. As this mighty arm of the Lord continues to produce that justice and righteousness within us. And when we went through Isaiah 58, we saw there was much reason to be hopeful for what God was doing in Rexdale and in other places. As the nations around see the church marked by a passion. Both for people who are in darkness of sin and people who are in the darkness of injustice and unrighteousness. That they are then attracted. Now periodically God does this quickly. Kairos moments have come periodically in church history. The last two great awakenings, the great evangelical awakening of the 18th century and the 19th century, saw exactly that happen. When the glory of God shone upon the church in reviving power, the cross was lifted up, Jesus was magnified, the church was purified in her lifestyle, and then whole new initiatives, both in social justice and missions, were unleashed as a result of that. But while he has done it periodically in those Kairos times, it's also happening at a much lower level, much less dramatically in those long Kronos times as well. Because it is still true that any, wherever in this world and whenever in this world the nations see the church demonstrating more of the beauty and the compassion of Jesus for both the lost and the poor and the glory of Jesus is revealed that they are inevitably attracted. Let me just read for you a letter that just came yesterday. I wrote back to the gentleman who sent it to me. He's one of our international workers and will not name him because of the, for obvious reasons. Many of you know what's happening in Syria these days. Our newspapers are full of that. Listen to what else is happening in Syria that you will not read in the newspapers. 
This is the story of a small church in the Beka Valley, east of Beirut. The church, which had started as a Bible study 10 years ago, has a regular attendance of about 50 people over the past few years. All that changed six months ago. As the Syrian refugees started flooding into Lebanon, the small church decided to reach beyond their safe boundaries and assist families regardless of religion, ethnicity or tribe. They started providing food, blankets, mattresses and stoves as the winter set in. And in the process they would share about a God who loved them and they also made available Christian literature. They had special programs for the refugee children over Christmas. They began to help them in medical emergencies and any other way possible. Today the church has almost tripled in size as Arab and Kurdish Sunni Muslims, Alawites and historic Christians sit in the same room and worship the living Savior while 20 kilometers away a brutal civil war rages that has pitted these same people against themselves. The church today is helping 500 families with food and over 400 families with additional non-food items. The midweek prayer times which used to attract 15 people now have 70, over two-thirds of them non-Christians. One Muslim refugee man was so deeply touched by what he had heard that he went to northern Lebanon to bring his wife who was staying with other families so that she could hear about this God. Why do they come? When asked, they said most come because of the love and concern that the church has shown. One Alawite woman who had fled with her family asked for prayer when her husband who had stayed back in Syria had been kidnapped. As the church prayed over three weeks, she got news that her husband was released. The Sunday we were there, she got up to testify what had happened and ended up saying how she was falling in love with Jesus. A few minutes later during the service, she asked that her newly born grandchild be dedicated to the living God. There have been two cases of miraculous healings among Muslims attending the church. Others have had Christ appearing to them in dreams. This is just one small church. There are similar stories from across Lebanon and from within Syria. In northern Syria, the pastors report of whole families wanting to follow Christ after experiencing compassion shown by the local church and Christians. One pastor said that the demand for Bibles among the Muslims in Syria is so great that they are unable to keep up with it. There are now seven other churches across Lebanon that are reaching beyond their walls. Revival? I don't know. But the same principle is happening. As the church is made beautiful by Jesus, and justice and compassion become seen by the nations around, they are coming in. And they are coming to know Jesus. But, but this all takes endurance. It takes endurance to remain committed to this task of praying for revival. Patiently allowing the Lord Jesus Christ to make us a people marked by justice and righteousness. So it doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy to me. And endurance to maintain this outward focus upon the nations. Daring to hope that the people walking in darkness will still see the great light. And what sustains us has always been Isaiah chapter 60. In the first century, when the church was being furiously persecuted by Domitian, who was a cruel at that time, John wrote Revelation. And one of the primary purposes for Revelation was not to titillate our imaginations about the future, but to give encouragement to the church that was being persecuted. And John, Revelation 21 ends with a picture that is taken almost exactly right out of Isaiah chapter 60. With the one additional huge clarification, John saw much more clearly what Isaiah couldn't see, the lamb at the center of the throne. And so here are these words. And I saw no temple in the city, for this temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. 
By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut. Those are the exact same verses from the latter part of Isaiah 60. And there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So what Haggai did, what Zechariah did, John does. Every one of them is anchored by this incredible vision. And so certain is this future, because the Lord said, I will do it in its time, that the author to the book of Hebrews says that any time God's people are gathered together for worship, they are in a setting where the future can break in upon the present. Theologians have a fancy term for it. They call it eschatological intrusion. The everyday word means the future breaks in upon the present. And we get a foretaste of it. I'm not making it up. This is what Hebrews 12 says. But you have come to Mount Zion. There it is again. (laughs) To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable agents. Do you know they are all around us right now? That far away, just a different dimension. It's not some place way out there. We are, this is where we are now. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. That's Haggai all over again. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and with awe. For our God is a consuming fire. That's what we finished singing a few moments ago. Here in your presence, we are undone. Here in your presence, heaven and earth become one. So let me just kind of put it all together in a picture. I got a lot of feedback last week from the diagram and how helpful it was. Here's another one that will help you. Here's what Isaiah 60 is basically saying. Future glorious Zion, made up of Judah and the nations, attracted first to the transformed life of Judah, but then to Jesus, to the Lamb of God who's at the center. That breaks in upon the church, Rexdale, every time she's worshipping. To give us hope and to give us encouragement. And then, according to the Apostle Paul, the ancient word, which was written for that same purpose, every time that word is preached, Isaiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Revelation, you get hope and you get encouragement. Word and worship work together to give us hope and encouragement. And by the way, the one thing that came to me loud and clearly, one of our elders prayed for me uh, Friday night. Again, that we will get a clear answer to the question. How will the sermon defeat Satan on Sunday? (laughs) This is what God gave to me very clearly. This message is not about exhorting reluctant people to do certain things that they are not doing right now. This is a message of hope for people who are already doing something. This is a word of hope and encouragement to keep going at it. At what? (laughs) At your involvement in this outward focus to the nations that are in darkness. So, those of you who are going, go keep going. (laughs) International workers who are probably hearing this message someday. May you be filled with encouragement and endurance because of the hope that is painted with this vision of the future. Trevor and Patty, and by the way, congratulations on your son who was born. Grateful to God for that. Trevor, Patty, Roop and Lena, keep going. Karen, go on this Friday to a difficult several weeks. Sustained by this picture. There's Natalie Watson sitting next to her. Keep giving water to Zimbabwe. Keep building those orphan uh, homes. Because of this future. Justice and compassion is what will transform glorious Zion. Can Hassan Ali keep going to Senegal and keep coming back? 
until those hospitals are built and the Fulani have been added to the kingdom. And all those who are here working with the nations in University of Toronto and downtown and your neighbors, keep doing it. Because they're coming. This is the glorious future. And then keep giving. Remember, it's the wealth of the Gentiles that is financing this whole thing. (laughs) And that's most of us here. Not a single dollar given cheerfully and strategically will ever be wasted. Because it is going towards a cause that is guaranteed to succeed and is already surrounded by the successful church in heaven which sees the glory of God fully. Let's keep praying. Keep praying to make the church of God glorious. That the glory of God will rise. Arise, shine, for your light has come. Michel wrote that song from Isaiah chapter 60. That's the prayer for revival. Keep rising God. Keep doing this thing over and over again. Because this is what the future is. And so we can confidently pray. Because he said, in its time, I will do it. What better prayer to pray than one that God has guaranteed the answer to? There's a whole lot of things we pray about. We have no guarantee. We have no guarantee about our health. We have no guarantee about our success. We have no guarantee about our jobs. We have no guarantee. Although we pray for all of those things. Give us this day our daily bread. is a perfectly okay prayer. But none of them are guaranteed. This is guaranteed. That's what keeps me going. Whether we gather together on a Tuesday afternoon. Or a Tuesday night. Or a Wednesday morning. On our Sunday night concerts of prayer or privately in your small groups, not a single prayer would spread out over those letters which raises all kinds of difficult questions. Not a single moment is wasted because the outcome is guaranteed. And then continue partnering in the work of encouraging. Not a Skype call, not an email written, not a visit made like you guys did in Cambodia. Not a moment of that is wasted. (laughs) Just keep doing it. May you be encouraged. May you be filled with hope. May worship and the word combine together to just cause you to overflow in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. One last thing and with that we're finished. Isaiah also said that all this is for our joy. (laughs) Don't forget that. Don't forget that. This is throughout scripture. Even in Lent as we are thinking about Jesus. What does it say? For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. The chronos is not joyful. The kairos is. But you don't get to the kairos without the chronos. Eugene Peterson put it beautifully and with that I am finished. He said this. We try to get joy through entertainment. We pay someone to make jokes. Tell stories perform dramatic actions, sing songs. We buy the vitality of another's imagination to divert and enliven our own poor lives. The enormous entertainment industry in our land is a sign of the depletion of joy in our culture. Society is a bored, gluttonous king employing a court jester to divert him after an overindulgent meal. But that kind of joy never penetrates our lives, never changes our basic constitution. The effects are extremely temporary, and when we run out of money, the joy trickles away. Joy cannot be commanded, purchased, or arranged. Joy is not an escape from boredom, but a plunge by faith into God's work. A faith in the words of Isaiah 60 that harnesses the power of a glorious future. This is my blessing for you as it is for me. When the challenge of living a missional life gets difficult, 
May you stop looking at yourself and lift up your head. <laughs> Open the door that the King of Glory may come in. Let Isaiah preach to you again. Let Haggai preach to you. Let Zechariah and Paul and John preach to you. And let the songs of Zion lift you up and connect you with that invisible church. And may worship and the word combine to make you hopeful once again. Not because of your strength or mine, but because of this unalterable glory that is awaiting us. Go in Jesus' name. Amen.